I think that we're in the era of the modern courthouse being a multi-door courthouse. Mm-hmm. And programs like this restorative justice initiative provide, in my view, better access to justice from a culturally appropriate perspective. I think it provides the opportunity for meaningful participation in the justice system. If we can um, sort of provide a, a system that works alongside the courts, that offers the opportunity for those who come into contact with the court system, as I said, family members, community victims, offenders, to uh, heal outside of our process. It, it provides them an opportunity to do something we just can't give them within the four yeah. walls of our courthouse. This podcast is brought to you by Dentons. We are the largest law firm in the world with offices in more than 200 locations across 80 countries available to support you everywhere you do business. We're a law firm that embraces change and can help you grow, protect, operate, and finance your organization, which is why Dentons is organized to offer more than just legal insight. We're here to help you find business solutions in a seamless fashion across the globe. Hi everyone, my name is Heather Barnhouse, partner and lawyer in our Edmonton office. Welcome to my podcast where I explore the topic of women in entrepreneurship and leadership and the ecosystem supporting the growth of this segment. Today I'm thrilled to be joined by three justices from the courts in Alberta who are going to share with me a great initiative that the courts in Alberta are pioneering, being restorative justice. I am delighted to welcome Deputy Chief Justice of the Alberta Court of Justice, Joanne Durant, Justice Michelle Christopher from the Alberta Court of Justice, and Justice Anna Loparco from the Court of King's Bench. This is such a timely, topical, and important initiative for the justice system and the public that it serves, and I'm delighted that we can hear from each of you to tell us more about this initiative. Welcome to each of you, and thank you kindly for taking time out of your busy schedules to share your views on this important topic. To begin with, and to set the stage for the rest of the discussion, Anna, can you give us a little bit of background about what is restorative justice? Uh, Yes, thank you, uh, Heather, uh, for inviting us to this podcast. Restorative justice is defined as a process in which the parties affected by a criminal offense, so the victim, the offender, and the community members uh, at times, are supported and voluntarily participate in a discussion about the causes, the circumstances, and the impact of the offense. The dialogues take place with the assistance of an impartial facilitator or a knowledge keeper uh, in an Indigenous community or an elder, and they're tasked with engaging the parties to discuss the impact and recommendations for what needs to be done to rectify the harm. And ultimately, the goal is to build uh, understanding, encourage accountability, and prevent recidivism, uh, and ultimately permit the parties involved to heal from the harm caused by the crime, which is often not the case in a traditional justice system. Wow, that's a lot to to unpack. What was the impetus for the Alberta courts to consider this initiative? Well, it started uh, just shortly after my appointment uh, in 2019. Uh, The 
I, I met the honorable, uh, the late honorable Justice Bev Brown, who served as the first chief of the Nunavut courts. Uh, we met and we immediately discovered that we have this shared passion for expanding the use of RJ to criminal matters. Uh, I had some experience with youth criminal justice matters, and Justice Brown was a tireless advocate for improving the lives of Indigenous people and access to justice. So before she passed away, uh, we received, or she received, the spirit cream name. Uh, which translates to woman standing with the law. And so in her honor, we renamed uh, our committee after her and the committee grew after that to about 100 members uh, of the, of the public uh, from all, all, sorts of stakeholders in the community. Um, Michelle will talk more about that. But after she passed away, uh, Justice Christopher stepped up uh, and answered my call for help because uh, I was suddenly uh, uh, leading a fairly big committee. uh, And also uh, DCJ Durant came on board. And with both of their expertise with specialized courts and RJ, uh, we were able to bring together all interested stakeholders and create this project. Wow, that's a great story and lots of history to that. So thanks for sharing that. Um, Michelle, I think you're going to tell us a little bit about why this why this was launched as a pilot project. Sure. Um, it's really nice to be here and thank you also for inviting us to speak today. Um, this was envisaged uh, at first as um, a consultation process where we wanted to bring together stakeholders from the legal community, from the restorative justice community, from the Indigenous communities around us. And um, we really just wanted to have a discussion around what restorative justice could look like in Alberta. So we brought together, as part of our stakeholder engagement process, lawyers from the Crown and Defence side and from the private bar, not even in the criminal area, from family and civil Uh, divisions. We brought together law-related and pro bono partners, including representatives of John Howard, Eve Fry, Calgary and Edmonton Legal Guidance, those sorts of helping agencies that are law-connected. We brought together uh, restorative justice community members, so people who were involved in either the Alberta Restorative Justice Association or who otherwise provided services uh, in mediation and dispute resolution, including restorative justice. And then, of course, we tried to reach out to Indigenous community partners in the three treaty areas and the Métis regions in Alberta um, to get their viewpoints. We also brought in government and police agency representatives. And we started by having plenary meetings to just discuss sort of what um, this could look like in Alberta. Then, as we moved along, we went into a second phase where we focused on policy development, education, and evaluation as our three main areas of concern. And out of the policy development conversations, um, we worked extensively as judges with the Crown and other key stakeholders, including an Indigenous Foundation subgroup, um, to really hone in on what a policy could look like for Alberta. And we decided we wanted to have a a province-wide policy, and we wanted to have this implemented Uh, for all criminal matters. And so that led to the Crown working uh, internally to develop a referral policy. And I I think we'll speak about that um, in a moment. But with with the referral policy and a province-wide application, we decided we should have a launch event. So we invited um, members of our stakeholder groups and Indigenous, particularly 
focusing on Indigenous community partners because at the time we had a First Nation uh, in Treaty 8 um, area who wanted to come on and participate uh, fully in the launch. Um, so we had a ceremonial event launching the pilot on March 31st um, last year, 2022. And we invited all the representatives of our various stakeholder groups to come. We had federal and provincial ministerial um, representation uh, and we had a, a very meaningful event that started in our ceremonial Indigenous courtroom uh, in with ceremonies in our Indigenous courtroom uh, in Calgary and then moved into the large ceremonial courtroom where we heard a number of speakers um, from all levels of court and from the federal and provincial uh, governments and that led to um, the implementation of the policy in all of our courts in Alberta um, and I think um, it was a really great way to start because we invited members of the community to come also, even though it was at the tail end of uh, COVID uh, in terms of restrictions on people in the courthouse, we had a healthy um, physical presence and we had uh, pod, uh, broadcast this live so people could sign in uh, by uh, remote means and participate that way. So I think it really helped to get the word out as to what we were trying to do. Um, and um, we supplemented that by presentations to the Edmonton and Calgary Criminal Bar, because as it turns out, the pilot focused on criminal justice matters. And we hope in future that we will go um, into other areas. I think Anna's going to speak about that in a moment. But that's really how we started with the pilot. Uh, and uh, we're still, I think, in the pilot phase. Wow. Well, thank you for that background. It sounds like uh, there was obviously a lot of effort, a lot of stakeholders, a lot of different people who have had a hand in in getting this off the ground and, and in, in it continuing. And it sounds like the launch and the events that you described um, were very successful and, and very well attended. Looking back, um, when we look at the pilot project, Joanne, would you say that it is successful and did it lead to the desire to continue with the initiative? Thanks very much. And, and I'll also say thanks for, for having us today, Heather. Of course. We very My much pleasure. appreciate this opportunity. Uh, as far as, as was the pilot successful, really the process of evaluating the pilot is, is an ongoing process. So mm -hmm. we're looking at it both from a, a quantitative and a qualitative evaluation perspective. Quantitative is a little bit easier to capture because we can see numbers. We can look yep. through uh, the numbers that are processed through the court system itself and we see you know how many have been referred and uh, how many come back and if they're successful and what sort of types of referrals are occurring. Um, as, you, as you may well know, there are two different streams of the restorative justice pilot. One includes, uh, one is more of a, I'll say a diversion uh, stream where uh, at the end, if the restorative justice is successful, the hope is that the, or the plan is that the charges would be withdrawn by the Crown if appropriate. Mm -hmm. The other stream involves uh, those that are referred pre-sentence. So either post-conviction mm -hmm. after trial or post-guilty plea, and then they come back uh, for sentence. So we're the quantitative evaluation is a little 
bit easier. We can see those right. numbers and capture those numbers. The qualitative evaluation is something that we need to wait until the end of the process to get that feedback from the participants in it. So it, in that sense, it's not a quick process because the, the restorative justice can itself, by the time it's referred to the referring agency and then they begin, it can take months to work through. Right. So while our, our pilot essentially is uh, over a year old now, we are still getting uh, that qualitative assessment back from uh, our our stakeholder partners who are involved in, in providing the restorative justice services as to uh, how they feel and how the participants felt that the, um, the process had worked. So uh, the other problem is, or the other issue is, of course, the, the restorative justice partners that we work with or organizations, they only have so much capacity to take on new matters that are being sent to them from the courts. So uh, again, it's sometimes a time period before uh, people can get into these various agencies. But anecdotally, overall, we are hearing that it's been very well received, actually, particularly in some of the regional areas in the province that already had well-established restorative justice agencies. Now they're just getting all of the court referrals as well. Oh, good. But uh, anecdotally, uh, we are hearing that it has... um, has been providing an awesome service. So we're pleased with that. That's great. That must be very satisfying to know that all the hard work that you've put in so far um, has led to anecdotal reports of it being successful and more still to come as the program gains more more traction. And I want to ask you a little bit more specifically about Um, the types of matters that are appropriate for restorative justice. It occurs to me that not all matters might be appropriate. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the criteria that are important to consider in order to set it up for success. Yes. uh, So I'll get into more of the granular aspects of the policy, although usually we have uh, Matt Hinshaw, who's a a director in the uh, policy branch of the Crown Prosecution Service, and he was the architect of the policy. uh, And he usually speaks about this. So I'm going to do my best uh, to explain uh, how matters uh, are determined to be appropriate for restorative justice from the Crown's perspective. Um, As Joanne mentioned, there's the diversionary stream and then, and that's pre-plea where the intention is ultimately to withdraw the charges if this, if the restorative justice process is successful. And then there's the um, pre-sentencing. So the purpose is to inform the sentencing justice uh, about the process uh, and the individuals involved, et cetera, so that we have a more uh, informed um, process where we can craft our sentence more appropriately and culturally sensitive uh, to the participants involved. So with respect to uh, the pre-plea or the diversionary stream, uh, the considerations, well, first and foremost, it has to be a voluntary process. So everybody has to be well-informed and uh, participating without any pressure whatsoever to be there. And so when we talk about restorative justice, we uh, envision both victim and offender at the table and sometimes Mm. community members, et cetera. Uh, But there is also another form of restorative justice, which is transformative justice. And that may include only the offender. And so where the victim does not want to participate, but the offender still believes that um, he or she needs to work on uh, the root cause, the systemic reasons for the crime, they are also uh, able to still attend a restorative justice process. But essentially, when we're considering withdrawing charges, we have to consider the public interest and whether the separation of offender from society is necessary, whether long-term supervision or treatment or no contact is required, 
whether a, what is referred to as a SOIRA order, so um, uh, the uh, sexual offense registry, whether that is necessary for a person to be registered on that for the protection mm -hmm. of the public, uh, other ancillary orders that might be required as part of a sentence, such as a DNA uh, order, mm -hmm. Uh, whether uh, a recording a conviction is important, and whether there's a power imbalance between victim and offender, that might not make it appropriate for restorative justice. And then on top of that, uh, the Crown also must consider whether certain offences are simply not appropriate for restorative justice, although there are always exceptions. So essentially, everything can be considered, but there are uh, special considerations in cases where uh, there was a death, uh, where there was violence involving bodily harm, uh, sexual offences, uh, intimate partner violence, etc. Those need additional levels of approval and specialized treatment for restorative justice. Great. Well, thank you. That was really, really informative. Michelle, can you tell us why someone would or could consider this process? Well, I think that we're in the era of the modern courthouse being a multi-door courthouse mm. and programs like this restorative justice initiative provide, in my view, better access to justice from a culturally appropriate perspective. I think it provides the opportunity for meaningful participation in the justice system, uh, moving away from the traditional uh, Euro-colonial view of justice as being a retributive, retributive process. And it looks at instead harm reparation and hopefully will lead to a reduction in the over-incarceration of Indigenous people and in recidivism generally. So it is an opportunity for resolution of matters that come before the court on multiple levels, not only the legal aspects of um, a problem that brings you before the courts, but the emotional, interpersonal, familial and community um, perspectives that inform how someone gets into the justice system. And it speaks to interests which we would typically explore in dispute resolution uh, uh, systems, talking about the interests that bring people before the court and addresses things like their fears, hopes, concerns, beliefs, expectations, values. And it really is a value-based um, rep reparation type of program or process where the goals include harm reparation and rebuilding relationships where appropriate, as well as personal taking personal accountability. Um, so we think the process is very effective in reforming problematic behaviors as we move towards uh, reintegrating these people um, who have committed offenses um, into their communities and into their families. So I think it just provides a different option for people other than the mainstream retributive justice system. And, and it's been used, and I'll speak about this in a, in a moment, um, it's been used for centuries in, in different contexts around the globe. Wow, that was really, uh, really, really insightful and um, very important to note the other aspects that when you mentioned that the mainstream court would consider maybe a, a narrower view, I think it's really important to consider some of these other characteristics and elements that are important to the individuals and to the families and the communities and having an opportunity to consider those within uh, within a formal process. So thank you for uh, for that. I want to turn to Joanne and I want to ask, I'm sure the answer is yes, yeah, but are there any challenges with the process that have to be managed? And if so, how can they best be managed within this process? 
Well, I suppose I, I'd spoken a, a moment ago about there being some challenges because not all agencies have uh, capacity to take right. on the number of right. referrals. Um, the other aspect, I suppose, is that uh, the the courts don't determine and don't tell agencies what they have to take. So there are some agencies that uh, would prefer to not take particular types of matters, and we respect that. So yeah. uh, certain agencies uh, may not want to accept a referral for a sexual assault. So at times, um, if a matter has been referred and then the agency reviews it and says that's that's not something we are able to or prepared to address in in our restorative justice um, organization, then we will look for another organization to take it. That has not actually presented us uh, many problems at all. Uh, thankfully, we we have a number of agencies that are are uh, very willing to be involved with us, and uh, so that that's one thing we've we've navigated. Um, as I said, that the it's the re- we leave it to the restorative justice service provider to determine if they are prepared to accept the referral, and uh, and uh, if they if they won't or they can't, then we will just need to look for another uh, agency to. Uh, to refer it to, you know, ensuring quality of training, developing protocols and uh, training on a regular basis. Again, this is something the court doesn't interfere with from the perspective of the uh, of the service provider. They all have their own programs, but, uh, you know, uh, clearly the Crown's going to want to ensure that the program is appropriate to be dealing with the particular types of offences that are referred to it. And at various uh, uh, there has to be reminders at various times in the life of a file that uh, restorative justice is available. So there are, are sort of regular education with the courts mm-hmm. and with our stakeholders at Defence Bar Crown. I think Michelle alluded to that earlier, just to remind them this process is there. Please turn your mind to it uh, at uh, various points uh, in the life of a file. So um, some challenges that have come up, but uh, so far uh, we have been up to the challenge of meeting them. So. We, uh, I love that. Uh, yeah, we're pleased with uh, with how it's going so far. That's great. I, I love that. Um, you alluded to the fact that, you know, sometimes there's some education that, that needs to happen and people need to be reminded that uh, this process exists. Um, I think that as a general rule, some of our listeners may have heard some snippets about what restorative justice is or it isn't. And I'm wondering, Michelle, if you can maybe go through some of the myths that you can share and debunk for our listeners so that we have a better understanding at the end of this episode of what it is and maybe what it isn't. Well, sure. Um, we're in an era where increasingly, for a number of reasons, um, we're we're looking at the justice system as a place where we can get tough on crime, in quotations. And so yeah. the biggest myth um, is... I, are the the myths overall? I think um, sort of expose the um, idea that people don't understand this is an alternative to the traditional Eurocentric adversarial criminal justice system. And rather yep. than focus on re- retribution, the focus is twofold, which includes, as I mentioned, um, repairing harm to the community or to individuals, and to facilitate. Uh, personal accountability for offenders. So one myth, um, because restorative justice has roots in Indigenous justice systems, is that restorative justice equals Indigenous courts and is only for Indigenous people. And that's just not true. Uh, The way the policies have developed in a number of jurisdictions, including our jurisdiction, is that restorative justice is available to everyone, 
who comes before the courts um, uh, with a, a matter that otherwise would proceed through the traditional adversarial criminal justice system. Um, another myth is that it is soft on punishment. So rather than uh, taking this view that uh, we should get tough on crime and then throw more people in jail, uh, the myth is that um, restorative justice just won't accomplish the retributive goals of our criminal justice system. It's actually much harder to go through a restorative justice process because it requires intensive personal engagement with the process. It requires mm. a lot of hard work on the part of an offender. Most of the processes, including ours, are conference-based. So you actually have to go and meet and face the people who've been affected mm. by the wrongful behavior. Um, and you have to work very hard on personal development within that process, uh, rather than just sit in a box and wait out your time, which is what jail is. Um, yeah. You have to do a lot of hard work. And so it's sort of an akin to um, a treatment program where um, the accountability can't be denied. If you're going to succeed in that process, you have to participate fully and you have to be accountable for and participate in the discussion around what happened, what the impact was on other people and what the impact is on you. It's not just, as another myth would hold, a get out of jail free card, uh, because yeah. it doesn't mean that because you have participated in restorative justice that the sentencing judge um, cannot include a custodial sanction. Um, oh. That's still open, and that has to be clear from the outset. We hope that the restorative justice process will provide an alternative to incarceration. We hope that this will reduce uh, incarceration in certain um, demographics, particularly in the Indigenous population. But there's no guarantee, depending on what, what the um, offense is and who the sentencing judge is, that there won't be um, uh, a, a custodial se sentence at the end of the day. Um, it really depends on what's before the court. And of course, judges maintain their independence so they can make a decision um, that suits um, the law and the matters before the court. So another myth is that re restorative justice requires the victim to forgive an offender. And mm -hmm. that's not the purpose of restorative justice. Part of the process that they go through in consultation with the service provider, so it's usually a community-based group, um, uh, is, is to really um, work out how they came to be before the court. And mm -hmm. then by having a victim participate in the restorative justice process, they will have, perhaps for the first time in their life, the opportunity to really understand how their behavior impacted another person mm -hmm. and exactly yeah. what happened to that other person, which is a deeper engagement than simply sitting in court, for example, and listening to a victim impact statement. They have to work sure. with the person if, if they're part of the process. And the other myth, I suppose, is that all victims participate in restorative justice. Some programs don't require that. And in fact, for some uh, in cultural reasons, it may be inappropriate to involve a victim uh, in a restorative justice process. For example, some Indigenous communities might take a referral on a sexual assault matter, but they don't want to bring if, um, a male and a female uh, involved in that kind of dynamic together in the same room. Mm, so, yeah. so it may never be that the victim um, participates in the process, but that's that's okay because the, the pilot project in Alberta anyway doesn't dictate to a restorative justice service provider how they should run their process. It's enough that they have been screened and that they are um, approved as a service provider 
and then they do what they do and we don't uh, interfere with that. Uh, the other myth is that restorative justice is only appropriate for minor offenses. And our policy includes uh, any matter before the court, including serious matters. Some matters require an extra level of crown screening. So um, a very serious um, sexual assault or a um, bodily harm case or even a murder, that kind of thing, uh, would require extra crown screening for suitability. Um, but it's not simply a process that's for uh, minor offences. And then I suppose the biggest myth and perspective that um, challenges us is the idea that restorative justice is really a social work um, type of a function and not a justice system problem mm -hmm. uh, to overcome. It's not social work. <laughs> As I've said, it's a different perspective on um, how we handle matters uh, where people have uh, offended the criminal code. And when we think about the Indigenous justice system roots of restorative justice practices and principles, it is the case that many of these communities don't believe in uh, retributive justice at all. And what they believe in instead is, and, and they won't have a, a criminal code or a codified set of laws, what they will have is a recognition in their community that someone has made a mistake. So they speak of mistakes and not criminal offences. And then they work together to help that offender um, repair the harm that's caused by the mistake and to repair the harm that's done to the community, as well as learn how to avoid uh, repeating the mistake in the future. So a lot of myths out there. Those are just some of them. Um, but really, uh, it is harder work for someone to go through a restorative justice process than to simply participate uh, in, in a way that isn't personally meaningful in the existing uh, retributive adversarial system. Yeah, thank you so much. That was a lot of information and uh, you covered uh, you covered it really well and gave us a lot of insight. So thank you for uh, for doing that. Um, Joanne, I want to turn to you. And, and at the beginning of this, we heard that this process must be entirely voluntary. So everybody who participates uh, must be there voluntarily. So if the process is used, everybody volunteers to do that, what happens next? So for example, if the process has been undertaken, is it binding on a judge? Or what if it fails? Can the information that's used or disclosed in the process be used against someone? Is that information confidential? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. And I'll start perhaps with your last question first. So if the restorative justice process is not successful, then the matter is returned to court with uh, just simply uh, a letter or a notification to the uh, a judge and to the, the lawyers that uh, the matter is not successful and it will just simply carry on in the normal okay. course of the life of a file within the criminal justice system. So uh, nothing is that is said during the restorative justice process is admissible. It remains mm -hmm. confidential and within that process only. So as a sitting judge, I'm not going to hear about something that was said during the course of the restorative justice process uh, in a trial. It, uh, there are confidentiality agreements that uh, must be respected and that information is, is not to be shared during the course of a trial. So a judge will simply know it's come back and uh, won't be told why, that's fine, and we just carry on with the, with the process. Um, and, and then in response to your other question, is it binding upon a judge? Uh, no, uh, Michelle alluded to this, this earlier. Uh, any recommendation that is following a successful restorative justice 
uh, process is not binding on mm. the sentencing judge. And, and that simply respects the principle of judicial independence. And it right. means overall that nothing and no one is able to interfere with the judge's decision or discretion. Uh, now, having said that, I am confident that justices will no doubt appreciate any information that will be helpful in determining a final decision on sentence, including information that has come from the restorative justice process. Because yes, we have victim impact statements, but in court otherwise, but this is an opportunity to hear uh, from the offender, to hear from the, the victim, to hear from the community, and to have a recommendation back as to where a sentence may or may not go from a restorative justice service provider that has worked with all three of those components. Uh, so perhaps that may well better inform a sentence for a judge. So um, no, it's not binding. Uh, I'm sure it will be something of interest to a sentencing judge, however. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think that um, the the concept of this process being completely voluntary, your comment about how this must be confidential and their confidentiality agreements I don't think it would work as well if uh, if that wasn't an important element um, of that. So thanks for uh, thanks for clearing that up and, and sharing that. Anna, I want to ask you about what are some of your favorite examples, experiences, or stories from participants participating in the process. Um. Yes, thank you. Uh, well, I'll talk about one uh, that is a reported decision, and it is a serious case. Uh, it's a King's Bench reported, or it was Queen's Bench at the time. Uh, Justice Marta Burns had a case that was referred to restorative justice. And before I get into it, I just want to uh, emphasize one thing. Uh, it is about a major sexual assault. Mm -hmm. And what I want to take care of uh, in doing is uh, I want to ensure everyone understands that by no means is this project suggesting that sexual assaults should be referred to restorative justice. It is only when it is appropriate uh, and uh, and and driven by the parties. And that was this case. Uh, I, having said that, I also want to state that in having conversations with Sexual Assault Centre of Edmonton SACE, uh, they have indicated that a number of their victims would prefer restorative justice over oh going to court because they feel sometimes that the court process uh, re-victimizes or traumatizes them. So having said that, I just again want to make sure that I'm not triggering anyone in discussing this case because it uh, involves a, a serious sexual assault. So this is one of the cases, as I said earlier, there's two streams, the diversionary stream where charges are withdrawn, but there's this another stream, which is the pre-sentence post-conviction or post-plea. So where there is a finding um, of uh, liability, guilt, uh, or a guilty plea, or an admission of facts, uh, in some cases not necessarily a guilty plea, there is a process pre-sentencing. And that's what this case was. So this was a historical sexual assault uh, that occurred uh, in 1977. Uh, the victim at the time was 18 years old, and the accused was 32, and they knew each other well, and they were attending uh, a ball tournament. They had been drinking, and this occurred in Cold Lake, Alberta, at a ball tournament. Uh, the victim's plans fell through. She stayed the night and happened to stay uh, in the same tent as the accused. Uh, they slept together. She woke up uh, and felt that something was uh, not right. Um, she then uh, went to the doctor. She discovered she was pregnant. She gave birth to a son who at the time of the trial was in his 40s. She did not 
for whatever reason we can't judge, did not want to reveal anything about the circumstances of the sexual assault or report it uh, as while she was raising uh, her child. And even her partner of some 35 years did not, did not know. Uh, but after her parents uh, passed away uh, and um, she decided to come forward with this. Uh, she had un- very sadly suffered from lots of shame over the years, feelings of worthlessness, and even contemplated suicide. She decided that she needed to come forward, uh, and she did, and reported it to the RCMP. The DNA testing confirmed that the accused was indeed the father of the victim's son. At the time of the trial, however, the accused was 75 years of age, and he was not in good health. And the GLADU report that was provided to the judge uh, provided uh, helpful information about the accused, uh, who had attended residential schools, uh, as has his parents. He drank quite heavily in the 70s and 80s, uh, although he turned his life around, quit drinking, and was seen as um, a leader in that particular community. Uh, He had attended rehab and um, then uh, worked to assist other people who were struggling with addictions. Uh, He was in a stable relationship, was a father, uh, and was seen, as I said, as a role model in the community. This particular referral was really victim-driven. The victim wanted to go to restorative justice with him because her ultimate goal was not to have him incarcerated, but to have him accept responsibility and teach others about um, consent, proper consent, and the harms of sexual assault. In this trial, it actually went to trial, full trial. He didn't deny his role, but he also didn't plead guilty because he simply had no memory of that offence. Mm. So it was after conviction, uh, and as I said, victim-driven, uh, they found a restorative justice agency from their community and an elder to perform the uh, dialogue with them. And there were all, all obviously a number of factors that had to be considered. Um, in Alberta, uh, major sexual assaults of this nature with a sleeping or unconscious victim as a result of intoxication, particularly where a pregnancy has resulted, would no doubt attract a penitentiary sentence. So I do want to say that um, this was a bit of a controversial case. Uh, Not everyone will agree with the outcome. There were a number of factors to consider uh, with the accused's age, his poor health, the age of the offence, and the efforts he made towards rehabilitation. And most importantly, what the victim was asking for, for healing in this case, healing to herself and healing for the community generally. Uh, And so they went to restorative justice and came back with a recommendation. Uh, They had a circle that was made up with uh, respected elders, the family of the accused, Mr. LaRiviere, the victim's sister. So everyone had support and everyone had a say. Very noteworthy in this case was the fact that the victim herself, she felt justice had been served by the conviction for the sexual assault. She didn't want him to go to prison. But again, as I said, she wanted to participate in this sentencing circle so that it could be a teaching tool to unlearn bad behavior and show respect for women and realize that sexual assault is simply not okay. She wanted it to be an opportunity for education and awareness to other members. So in the end, the process that was uh, returned to court with a report from the agency and the recommendation was that he should receive a suspended sentence and probation of three years. Uh, And um, that was the request by the defense. The Crown still sought a penitentiary sentence. uh, And um, although it was seeking a two-year sentence, giving some mitigating factors versus the usual three-year starting point. Um, Justice Burns said this, and she made two very important statements, and that is that 
there is no point in having a sentencing circle if its input is not carefully considered and to the greatest extent possible implemented. And she said acceptance of recommendations from a sentencing circle is done to further the perspective of Aboriginal justice and foster rehabilitation, restoration and reconciliation. And she went on to say also that we must remember that RJ is a process that is not only about the offender, but also about helping the complainant obtain justice. And defining what justice is for the complainant must come from the complainant's perspective. And in this case, it did. And that was uh, listened to. And she also said that we can't unilaterally dismiss it as, uh, or, or dismiss the recommendations as she thought that that would be uh, displaying an intolerable degree of presumptuousness and mm. render the process essentially nugatory. So um, in the end, uh, that uh, he he did not get a penitentiary sentence, but I, I must emphasize the reason for that is because the criminal code in applicable at that time permitted other forms of sentences. Mm. Uh, and so I don't know that that would be the case today because our criminal code does require a penitentiary sentence uh, or our, our jurisprudence uh, in particular requires a penitentiary sentence for major sexual assault. But I just wanted to take you through that example to show um, what was done specifically uh, in terms of a major uh, criminal offence. Well, thank you. That was a, a really impactful story. And what I what I love about it is that you've highlighted in the in the quotes that you gave, you've highlighted the impact that it had on not only the, the, the not only the the accused, but the people who were complaining about it so much after, like so long after the fact, right? And I think it's really important that when you've lived with something as a victim and you've had you've been impacted that you have that opportunity in a really meaningful way and it sounds like this process really leads lends itself to um you know to to that so thank you for sharing that uh, that great story Joanne I want to ask you a question so beyond the potential for restoration of justice that its name implies Practically, what does this process do for the court system from a resource allocation and management perspective? Well, I will say at the outset that we did not begin this process with an eye to just simply trying to reduce the matters that are coming in <laughs> our court our court doors. Um, Michelle said earlier that, you know, we really began to look at it to see if we could provide better outcomes uh, to victims, right. to offenders, to communities impacted. And, uh, you know, ideally it provides better access to justice for the participants uh, who do go through restorative justice. But it also provides resolution services that that could very well be more culturally appropriate as well in certain circumstances. Uh, Michelle commented actually that uh, about our specialized courts and the Court mm -hmm. of Justice has developed a number of specialized courts across the province. We have seven drug treatment courts, we have a mental health court, we have some very large urban indigenous courts and uh, indigenous courts on First Nation lands. Um, mm -hmm. We also have domestic violence uh, courts across the province too. So we have a number of specialized courts that are designed to hopefully Hopefully, better accommodate uh, the needs of participants that come into those courts. And, um, you know, if, if there are matters, frankly, that can be dealt with outside of the court process in a better way than how we can handle it within the court process, uh, it will likely result in better outcomes uh, for the people who participate through the resolution as opposed to coming into a court, talking about it there and having one person or, or you know, perhaps... Um, 
a panel of three people, depending on where you are, decide your outcome. It, it allows them to have more ownership and involvement in this process as well. And, you know, if it if it leaves more time for those matters that come into court that absolutely have to be there, then I guess that's a win-win. But again, we didn't go into this with an eye towards just simply trying to remove a workload uh, from the courts. Great. Well, thank you for that. Um, Anna, so you the the example that you gave us was was squarely within the realm of criminal matters, and many of the examples that we've uh, touched on a little bit today um, have been in respect of criminal matters. Is that the primary emphasis at this stage in respect of restorative justice? And it, are there any other areas of law that are targets as being appropriate for um, this process? Um, right now, the project is uh, focused on uh, criminal offenses. However, mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that restorative justice or what we would refer to as restorative practices more widely mm -hmm. uh, are not available for other uh, types of disputes. Um, so you can imagine in uh, civil matters between families, uh, neighbors, mm -hmm. communities, or even in workplace uh, environments, there are always disputes that affect the uh, workplace, other employees, etc. And bringing in an expert with restorative practice expertise to help uh, guide a dialogue uh, can go a long way in uh, restoring peace in that community. And so right now we're focused on criminal, but we do have an eye on perhaps extending, expanding the project in the future to family and civil matters. Mm, great. Thank you. I look forward to that. Um, Michelle, are other jurisdictions beyond Alberta using the process or, to your knowledge, contemplating using it? Well, <laughs> I, I've got to say resoundingly yes. Um, there are thousands of programs across at least 20 to 25 countries across oh, wow. the globe uh, where restorative justice is growing and spreading. Uh, in Africa, in the um, 1960s and 70s, there was a rediscovery of tr African traditional justice by rest Western restorative justice pra practitioners. Um, and while traditional courts still operate in many parts of Africa today, um, there is a growing recognition of traditional African justice practices, uh, which include outcomes focused on healing relationships and ensuring restitution or compensation to victims and include symbolic gestures such as the sacrifice of animals and sharing of meals to indicate that crime has been expiated and the offender can now be reintegrated into that community. In Africa, there's also a link between traditional justice and restorative justice processes that's relevant in relation not only to crimes and or disputes between individuals, but also as the basis for processes to resolve crimes arising from conflicts at a national level. There are um, also um, traditional community-based processes uh, for restorative justice practices in places like Rwanda, Uganda, Namibia, Ghana, Gambia, South Africa, and Lesotho. And they have um, or are now in the process of implementing prog programs to uh, mesh together their uh, Eurocentric legal systems with African models of conflict resolution. Uh, in Asia, the term restorative justice is relatively new, but the concept is deeply embedded and rooted in Asian heritage and customary law, for example, um, is still used in many communities in Indonesia, though not in all. Uh, customary law in the People's Republic of China is also still in use and um, can address harm, harms um, in criminal matters for 
crimes such as murder, manslaughter, assault, causing bodily harm, theft, rape, adultery, uh, breach of public interest, robbery, kidnapping, and restorative-oriented processes and outcomes take different forms and differ from tribe to tribe within um, the country. But they could include examples such as um, uh, tea processes, wine and feasting, poultry restitution, gifts, um, uh, labor service, re-education, or other spiritual practices. And generally, it's it's got its basis in Confucianism. Um, and notwithstanding the Cultural Revolution, these ideas are coming back uh, into vogue in, the, in China, uh, Japan, Nepal, Pakistan, the Philippines, or, or and Bangladesh, Singapore, and Thailand are also included uh, in the continuum of, of restorative justice practices across Asia. In Europe, we have um, a number of examples uh, in countries where, um, such as Finland, France, and Norway, volunteers play an important role in restorative justice practices, whereas in other countries, including Austria, Germany, and Belgium, the interaction um, and intervention is highly professionalized. Um, the Council of Europe and the European Union have both made some strides in recommending um, and encouraging member states to provide restorative justice processes uh, and services in Latin America, Argentina, Chile, Costa Rica, Brazil, and Mexico developed and uh, have developed a range of practices and ideas. In Costa Rica, there is um, a governmental movement to reform and modernize the justice system to include a developing restorative justice practices as early as the um, mid-1990s. Uh, in 1998, Costa Rica implemented a new criminal justice code and under the code, uh, a reconciliation process is an option for adults who are engaged in the criminal justice system. Um, Mexico, of course, um, is probably one of the most recent countries to consider the use of restorative justice practices in that area of the world which also honor the um, tradition, traditional ways of Aboriginal people in Mexico. Um, North America has some of the, the most fully developed restorative justice programs in the world. Some come out of um, ideas that arose in the Mennonite community, others from Aboriginal or Indigenous traditions, and still others from victims' rights movements. Close to home, Manitoba has actually in 2014 implemented a restorative justice act and it's, I think, alone in Canada and having actual legislation which requires the Minister of Justice to uh, consider and um, promote um, and restorative justice. So it says the department must develop policies respecting the use of restorative justice programs. Uh, the Pacific region, of course, um, highlights the development of uh, restorative justice through um, traditional Maori practices in New Zealand. Uh, Australia is not as advanced for a number of reasons uh, that relate to the constitution and history of, of that country. But in New Zealand, prior to the arrival of Europeans for thousands of years, the Maori, the Maori had developed well-established social structures and systems of accepted rules and conventions by which their societies were regulated and governed. And these rules and conventions related to all aspects of communal life, including family relationships, property, conflict resolution, trade and land rights, the protection of the environment. And when the Maori signed um, their treaty with the colonizers in 
uh, New Zealand in 1840, they were promised that they would continue to exercise jurisdiction over their affairs in this way. But unfortunately, um, the new government imposed an adversarial British system of justice on uh, New Zealand and all the citizens, both Maori and not. And the British uh, just system of justice, of course, is the same system that we have. But uh, that having been said, today, um, New Zealand has developed uh, robust policies which require and support the provision of restorative justice services um, and practices that are run by community-based groups contracted by the Ministry of Justice. Um, and this includes Maori service providers uh, who are available in many, many areas. So um, there are numerous examples across the globe where restorative justice is really um, at the forefront of uh, criminal justice reform. Um, it's a um, supplement to rather than a replacement for traditional adversarial justice systems. But increasingly, as more countries become involved in, in understanding how restorative justice works and what the benefits are, I think that it will really enter the mainstream. Great. Well, that was a very comprehensive review. And what I took away from that is that there are many opportunities um, you know, to look, if, if there's a solution out there, there's many opportunities to look to our global uh, colleagues to, to look and understand what they're doing and see if there's any opportunity to bring it into what we're doing and to share our knowledge and experiences um, with them. So thank you for that. I want to ask a personal question of each of you, and I will start with Anna because you have been involved the longest and uh, with the, the initiative uh, since the very beginning. And I want to understand why each of you personally buy into and ha have become a spokesperson and a leader within the judicial system for this initiative. What does it mean for each of you? Let's start with Anna. Um, okay, well, for me personally, um, with my background, as you know, I acted uh, or worked with in child protection with the Child and Youth Advocate right. for many years. Uh, and I personally saw the impact of uh, crime on families and how the intersectionality of child protection and family law and criminal law impacted right. communities and families. And um, then in addition to that, uh, I was a former chair of the Mediation and Restorative Justice Centre in Edmonton. And as part of that work, uh, we received a lot of referrals uh, for youth criminal justice matters to restorative justice. And I personally saw the transformation in youth. And mm -hmm. I personally believed that we needed to expand this, make it more mainstream for the adult population as well. And, uh, ha you know, having uh, run that organization and also understood how difficult it was um, to write grant applications and can get consistent funding and referrals. I made it my um, personal project that if I was ever appointed, uh, that uh, I would do what I could to make it uh, connected to the justice system. So um, to have some form of referral uh, that would be meaningful in appropriate cases to the parties involved because of the experiences I had in my uh, work uh, in this area in the past. So that was my um, motivation and continues to be. Well, thank you for your dedication to that, because obviously it has uh, it has come a long way. Michelle, let's go to you. What is your uh, why for why you're involved? Um, 
Well, I'm an inveterate volunteer. I suppose you could say a lifelong <laughs> volunteer. I'm always trying to make a difference in whatever I'm doing. And this came about um, for me very early in my judicial career when I was looking for ways to get involved and to make a difference. Um, and Anna asked, so how can you say no to Anna? Simply, it was that simple. Yeah, you can. <laughs> I, I could work with Anna. I loved Anna. And I thought, you know, this is a worthwhile project. Um, the second uh, reason I think really speaks to my prior experience on a number of lever- levels as a lawyer, as a mediator, a former law professor. As a mediator, I studied um, dispute resolution systems. I did a master's degree with a focus on dispute resolution. Um, and then I had um, probably 30 years of mediation experience um, resolving all kinds of disputes in a way that looked at the interests of people involved in the dispute rather than what the systemic um, uh, response would be. So we looked at it from an individual or personal um, engagement uh, perspective rather than um, an institutional perspective. Um, as a scholar of sorts, I studied uh, dispute resolution systems across the globe and have, have an interest in that. I took extensive training, not only uh, through my master's degree, but otherwise um, looked at the pedagogy of how you teach people to become mediators and what the benefits of mediation and alternative forms of dispute resolution were. So I had that background. And then as a lawyer in my practice, I had a family and criminal background and I worked extensively with families and young people. And in Calgary in particular, we had uh, in the past uh, a program that started through the Mennonite Central Committee that was a Calgary Youth Conferencing um, uh, program. And I knew that this worked. It was a restorative justice-based program where if a youth pled guilty to an offence and wanted to attempt a restorative justice resolution of their criminal matter, they could be referred to Calgary Community Conferencing and a conference would be convened for the purpose of exploring the harm that was done to the victim and to the community and helping that young person understand um, the reasons and causes for their behavior and their offense and the impact on the community and the victim. And we would it was exactly what we're doing now with our restorative justice program, but it was focused on youth. And sadly, that program doesn't exist anymore because of a confluence of funding and jurisdictional um, changes in the way um, the referrals uh, were made uh, or could be made. And But in, in any event, youth can still go um, through our new uh, pilot project referral process to restorative justice. So I had this combination of sort of volunteer experience, um, uh, academic experience, practical experience as mediator and lawyer that kind of said, this is the right fit for me. And it's the right fit, I think, for our province at this stage um, of the development of our multi-door courthouse. Great. Well, thank you for uh, thank you for your support of of the program. And last but certainly not least, Joanne, what does it mean for you? Well, um, I guess I'll I'll start by saying I've been involved in the criminal justice um, programs or in the courts since uh, 1993 in one capacity or or another. Uh, initially as defense counsel and then mm-hmm. as a crown prosecutor for many years before my appointment to the bench as as a judge as an assistant chief judge and and now as the deputy chief judge and I I can say over the course of those many years I have uh, come across um, many very broken people either uh, victims of crime the families if the victims are no longer alive um, and uh, also the offenders and um, they uh, you know they 
they don't wake up in the morning or one day and just decide they want to be um, an offender of and uh, commit horrendous criminal offenses. They've often had a quite a traumatic journey that's brought them to where they are as well. And so what uh, really impacted me over that time uh, was brought home in one case that I'd been prosecuting a number of years ago. It was a second degree murder trial. And I had been working a lot with the um, surviving fiance of the of the deceased in that matter and just preparing her, helping her through the justice system, understanding what was going on, preparing her for possible outcomes uh, of a jury verdict. And when the jury came back, uh, convicting the individual of uh, second-degree murder. Um, after uh, we'd finished in the courtroom, I, I obviously took some time to to speak with her, and um, she just looked a little bit lost. And ultimately, when we talked it out, she said she'd come to realize that really what she was expecting at the end of the day, perhaps having watched a lot of television, was that um, this would be done, but her fiancé would come back in the door and they would carry on with their lives together. And it it really brought home to me that, you know, people come to us looking for justice. And I think what justice means to everybody can be a little bit different. But yeah. the reality is for all of those people coming to the courts, uh, they um, we move on. You know, we move on to our next case. We have another file sitting on our desk. We have another day full of court proceedings that come to us. But those people still have to cope with their loss and with what has happened to them. And um, uh, we don't help them with that anymore. That's the that's work that they need to do on their own. So when when I was in and, and many don't know how to do that. So I guess when I was invited to participate in this program, Fast forward a bit, I'd also then by that point had the opportunity to be involved uh, for about eight years as uh, a sitting justice in a drug treatment court in Calgary. And when uh, Michelle speaks of this type of process being very difficult to uh, participate in, I I can assure you, having seen participants in drug treatment court do extraordinarily hard work and Mm -hmm. um, understand accountability and and get to the point where they're they first of all can get to the root of the problem ideally we'd love that because that means you won't come back and you won't offend against more victims and so that that's a that's a goal and so they um you know to see them uh begin to appreciate the impact that they have had on others uh by their offending was uh, very impactful for me as well. And so ultimately at the end of the day, if we can um, sort of provide a, a system that works alongside the courts, that offers the opportunity for those who come into contact with the court system, as I said, family members, community victims, offenders, to uh, heal outside of our process, it, it provides them an opportunity to do something. We just can't give them within the four yeah. walls of our courthouse. And so for me to uh, be involved in an opportunity that would then present itself and be available to those people coming to the courthouse, I, I don't feel so much as we're abandoning them. They can yeah. go through through this process and heal because they're the ones that need to continue to live the rest of their lives without us. And uh, But often having lost something that was uh, what was very important to them. And so hopefully this provides the opportunity for them to heal and to move forward in their lives. Yeah, thank you. 
I want to ask, what do you see next as next steps for the wider implementation or adoption of restorative justice? Michelle, you've, of course, told us uh, that, that many jurisdictions are, are thinking about it or have, have already adopted it. What do, you need, what do you see as the next steps for its place within the judicial system? Well, we have some barriers, I would say. <laughs> and the first okay. is to shift perspectives from um, an all-encompassing retributive justice system to one that embraces restorative processes that emphasize harm reparation and personal accountability over punishment. So that's one barrier. The second is, a, is really the resource-based piece in terms of things like funding and education and training for restorative justice service providers who might seek accreditation as we incorporate uh, resolution services like this into our um, justice services, uh, services that the court centres traditionally provide. And then I think the third is with respect to community engagement. We need to improve our relationships with, um, in particular, our Indigenous uh, partners. Um, I would say we have a lot to learn and a long way to go in building the trust that we need to continue with this process and fully embrace cultural differences and Indigenous legal orders and practices in our justice system. That having been said, I think the next step is really just to continue um, community and stakeholder engagement so that we can work on the first piece, which is really shifting those perspectives. Because I think once we have um, that perspective um, adopted in the wider legal community, the rest will fall into place because people will see the benefits. They will debunk the myths. And they will be able to see that while not everything is suited for restorative justice, equally, not everything is suited for trial. And my own view personally is that only things that really need a, a judge to make a decision as a third party neutral in the matter should be in the courts. Many, many things can be resolved outside of the court system and are more appropriately placed in that um, system. And it's not, as Joanne said, that we're trying to reduce the dockets and the load in the courts. It's just that we are trying to find a more appropriate way for the resolution of all matters. And some of those have to be in the court and some don't. So what we would like is I think in terms of next steps is really more community engagement, more understanding and working on shifting that perspective from the retributive to the restorative um, aspects of of criminal justice in particular, and then later other justice systems. Anna? Um, what I would want to add there is uh, shortly after the launch of our project, the province announced uh, that they are working on an RJ strategy, and this is very mm. promising for us uh, because we do think that uh, while we're doing what we can to refer matters back out to the community, we really need a broader uh, approach to this that uh, encourages that early intervention, because as everyone knows, once uh, um, as time goes on and lawyers get involved, uh, the parties dig their heels in and and we lose that opportunity for that dialogue. Mm -hmm. uh, it can happen later, but I think that having support services early on is really critical. Uh, so we're hopeful uh, that uh, this um, framework is expanded to include wraparound services uh, that might include addiction services and counseling, mental health counseling, perhaps family reunification counseling of some sort, so that it's not just the RJ dialogue, but all of the work that needs to be done after the parties leave the room uh, and either, you know, charges are withdrawn or a sentence is imposed, that there's the continual work that goes on uh, for true recognition 
reconciliation and true uh, reintegration back into the community. Thank you. Uh, the future looks bright for uh, restorative justice and this initiative. So thank you. Do any of you have any other final comments or observations that we haven't covered yet today? If anybody um, needs to reach out to us, I'm open yes. to that. And I think we all are. We need to yes. talk more about any of the listeners want to talk more about how we engage with community or how the policy development process worked or any of those things. Feel free to give us a a call or send us an email. And we do have a website uh, that has all of the, that has the Crown policy and all of the agencies uh, that have been approved for the roster for referrals, not to say that it can't go to another agency, but these ones have websites with more information for parties who are interested in RJ. And that I should tell you what the website is. It is uh, www.rjalbertacourts.ca. Well, thank you. You beat me to the next question, which was where do we find out uh, about this? So thank you for uh, informing us. And I'm sure that many of our listeners will uh, will check that out. Deputy Chief Justice Durant, Justice Christopher and Justice Leparco, thank you to each of you for sharing your perspectives, your experiences and your hopes for the restorative justice process. This was really informative for me, and I feel honored to have explored this topic with you today. And I know our listeners will so appreciate having heard your messages. Congratulations on the initiative to date, and I look forward to watching and participating in its future success. Thank you for joining the podcast today. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe or follow to get notified when we have an update.